Good morning. Today we're concluding our journey through Genesis in this fourth Sunday of our year of the Bible. And um, invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 39. The story of Joseph actually begins in Genesis 37. So this is a couple episodes into the drama. But it's an important one. And you'll notice the kind of thing Jill was talking about with the children. So as, as I read, be aware of the flow of the action here. It's important for us to see. Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became successful. He was in the house of his Egyptian master, His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. He made him overseer over his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and with him there he had no concern for anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome and good-looking, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and, and said to his master's wife, look, With me here, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my hand. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not consent to lie beside her or to be with her. One day, however, when he went into the house to do his work, and while no one else was in the house, she caught hold of his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called out to the members of her household. She said to them, See, my husband has brought among us a Hebrew to insult us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And when he heard me raise my voice and cry out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Then she kept his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought in among us came in to me to insult me, but as soon as I raised my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Well, when his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, saying, this is the way your servant treated me, he became enraged. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And there he remained in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. 
And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's care all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The chief jailer paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. May God add a blessing to this God's word. Once upon a time, long, long ago, the early church had a vital decision to make. Which writings would make up their scriptures? It was a real choice, and the answer was not obvious. Uh, The books that now make up our Bibles uh, were not finalized until several centuries after Jesus. Can you imagine that? Longer than there has been a United States of America, which books and in what order was in a state of flux? Imagine. The key question for the early church about which writings to include in the Bible was this. What about the story of God and Israel? That is, what about the writings that now have come to make up our Old Testament? Are the writings of the first covenant people essential reading for the new covenant people? It was a real question. Of course, we know how it turned out. Yet it's important to realize that there was substantial opposition to this, a lot of opposition to including the Hebrew Bible in the Christian Bible. Still, there was a majority voice that prevailed. And that majority voice was this. For the church to understand God and his son Jesus Christ and the church's Lord, it is essential that she, the church, know the story of God and Israel. It is not optional. Hmm. And so what that means for us, brothers and sisters, in our year of the Bible is that instead of reading, uh, well, 300 pages or so over the next year, we'll be reading somewhere around 1,000. Hmm. And let's be honest. As we do our reading over the course of this year, we will have occasion to wonder about the value for Christians of, well, this certain passage in the Old Testament, or maybe the whole thing. You have permission to struggle with that because the early church did. Yes, they did. We're not the first to have our struggles with why this is here in our Bibles. So go ahead and struggle. When you do that, remember the struggle of the early church, but also remember that ribbon of a, of a, of a primary voice that was never silenced, and the decision they finally reached. We can't walk into God's symphony three-quarters through and expect to get it. The Old Testament is essential music for disciples. Hmm. Well, two weeks ago, we began our journey through this first book of the Bible. We looked at Genesis 1 through 11. Creation the marvel of creation. Adam and Eve, the snake, the talking snake. Banishment from this pristine and wonderful garden to life outside of it. 
east of Eden. Cain and Abel, fratricide, the, 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 the murder of a brother by a brother in the first family already. The Tower of Babel, ambition, ambition raised up before heaven. And what we saw again and again is violence escalating on the earth, violence increasing everywhere, and we saw God change. We saw God change from feeling very good to very sorry. What an awful thing we have been permitted to gaze at. And so God reluctantly brings the great flood, the great flood to cleanse the earth of violence. Yet afterwards, God hangs up his bow in the clouds, and we are permitted again to see the inside of that. God hangs up his bow once and for all and says, never again, never again. Well, I cleanse the earth in this way. And then last week, we looked at the middle chapters of Genesis. God adopts a new plan, a new plan for redeeming creation. It is a plan to bless all the families of the earth. And to put this plan in motion, God chooses a particular family, the family of Abraham, to be his special partners in this blessing project. As we saw, God's partner family may be chosen, but they are far from choice. The family of Abraham is full of dysfunction, dysfunction. And yet God will not give up on his creation and will not give up on these imperfect covenant partners in spite of their many problems. And, and that, that that God hanging in there with the problems in the people needing blessing and even the blessed people is a testimony to God's amazing grace. That's what we saw last week. Well, today we look at the closing 14 chapters of Genesis, the story of Joseph. What we have seen to this point is that the main dysfunction in Abraham's family system, the unhealthy pattern that repeats itself down through the generations, is one parent choosing a favorite child over the others. Hmm. And in the story of Joseph, great-grandson now of Abraham, guess what? There it is again. Favoritism. This is what we read in Genesis 37, verse 3. This is the very beginning of the Joseph story. Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his brothers. Favoritism. It was there. It was obvious. This wasn't hidden. Everybody knew it. And Joseph's brothers hated him for it. This family system never seems to get it. Let's talk about Jacob for just a moment. Jacob had been his mother's favorite. See the passing it down through the generations? The scripture says, moreover, that he was a quiet man dwelling in tents. I hesitate, but maybe he was kind of a mommy's boy. 
Well, he liked playing underneath the quilt rack when he was a child, and when he was old enough, Rebecca sat him down in front of the Singer sewing machine. She gave him pillowcases to start off with, and he gained skills. So later on, Jacob was able to make a coat, a special coat, one of many colors. And Jacob made exactly one of those special garments for exactly one of his children. And he gave it to that child. I'll bet you know which one it was. Yeah. Now, Joseph is 17 years old at the beginning of this story. He is full of himself. Not surprising, his father has fully encouraged that by his blatant favoritism. Joseph's motto is, uh, a selfie a day keeps my ego okay. Now, as Vance Unrau will tell you, the prefrontal cortex here is not fully developed. Okay? Joseph doesn't always think through the consequences of his actions. So he dreams of his own grandeur, of how he will come to dominate all his brothers. He dreams, for example, that they're out in the field binding sheaves and, and they, they get all these sheaves collected and there's Joseph's in the middle and his brother's around the edge and all the brother's sheaves bow down to his. And do you know what Joseph does with that dream? Well, he goes and tells his brothers that dream, the brothers who already hate him and they hate him all the more prefrontal cortex, not fully developed, okay? Then his father sends Joseph out to the fields. Go out and check up on your brothers and bring me back a report. And do you know what Joseph wears out to the fields to visit his brothers who hate him? The one and only coat of many colors. Prefrontal cortex not fully developed. The brothers reach a breaking point. It's, it's only out of the intervention of Reuben and Judah that Joseph is prevented from being killed. Finally, the brothers decide on throwing him into a pit, and then they feast and celebrate. Meanwhile, caravan passes by and the merchants take Joseph and take him down to Egypt and there they sell him as a slave. So this is where we are now at the beginning of Genesis 39 which we just looked at together. What I want you to do now is locate this um, yellow insert that you have there in your bulletins. Take that out for a minute if you would. Um, I, I'm giving you here an example, a, a kind of a tool that you might use somewhere during this year of the Bible to outline a story that really grabs you, okay? This is my own outline, but it's not rocket science. Um, you may have somewhere over this year that you just want to follow something more deeply and you want to see a little bit more of how the action moves. So here's something you can do, okay? And here's an example of it. Treat, treat a Bible story like a play. You're out in the audience watching a play, and notice actors coming on the stage and acting out a particular scene. Call it a scene. And, and then 
notice when the action changes and those actors go off stage and the scenery changes and new actors come on and they do some other kinds of action and then it changes again. That's basically what I've done here and just divided the verses of chapter 39, what, what I'm saying is into five scenes. Uh, there'd be other reasonable outlines that might have four or six, so it's not, it's not absolute here. But when I did this, oh, I, I also gave titles to each of these scenes that make up the episode so that I could follow kind of the action. And I'm focusing on Joseph, so I want to see that. What I saw here when I put this together was something I hadn't seen quite in such bold relief. Look what's going on. Follow the flow of the action, okay? Joseph is sold as a slave. Joseph becomes successful as a house manager. Joseph is seduced. Joseph resists seduction. Joseph is falsely accused and imprisoned. Joseph is successful as a prison, prison leader. Do you see that? It just struck me. Incredible. Um, so that's the kind of thing you can see in much more, um, much more bold relief when you do something like this little exercise that I've done. We notice you know, bad things happening, as Jill said, and then good things happening. And notice the language in the outer scenes, scene one and scene five. Look at that. Because twice in the beginning scene and twice in the end scene, there is this expression, the Lord was with Joseph. It's almost like that expression becomes kind of a bookend on each end of this episode in the Joseph story. And what those, those brackets, those bookends say is that everything in between is to be understood as part of the Lord was with Joseph. Yes, everything is to be understood as part of the Lord is with Joseph. Very, very interesting. Just hang on to that idea for a bit. Now, if you look at those middle scenes of Genesis 39, the Lord is with Joseph as he faces a great and particular temptation. The wife of his master makes repeated sexual advances towards him. If, you, if you're reading carefully, you'll notice they escalate until finally she grabs a hold of him, okay? Why does she do this? Why? Is she lonely? Does, does her husband Potiphar travel lots on business and he's simply inaccessible? Or is he, you know, not very, you know, woman-friendly? He doesn't share his feelings. You know, he's kind of like Hank Hill on King of the Hill or Mike Heck on The Middle. You know, he just he doesn't really know what feelings are. Um... Or, or, as the beginning of Genesis 39 tells us, Potiphar is a saris. That's the Hebrew word, saris. There are two possible meanings for that word in Hebrew. Is Potiphar a high government official, or is he a high government official who is also physically a eunuch? That is, he is a castrated male, and by being a sexless person, he's ideal for a position in government because he's no threat to the women of the royal family through whom he could otherwise, you know, father a competing heir to the throne. Did Potiphar's wife seek sexual gratification elsewhere for that reason? Or was it a case of the 
prefrontal cortex. You know, it's just kind of spontaneous, you know? One day she's on the cell phone. She looks out the sliding glass doors. There's this young, handsome stud skimming June bugs off the pool, you know? He has no shirt, and there's these six-pack abs, and the wheels start rolling. And Did she put on the Barry White CD? Did she put on a little something from Victoria's Secret? And if it's from Victoria's Secret, it's always a little something, isn't it? Right. And did she open those sliding glass doors? Hmm. Now think about it. The boss's wife is the instigator. And in the last part of this repeated sexual advancement, there are no witnesses. Think about it, right? Okay. You see, if it comes down to he said, she said, which one of them is going to be believed? You know, right? And why is that? See, when sexual boundaries are crossed, it's often because between the two individuals, there's a difference in power. There's a difference in power. Think about the situations in which that can occur. A teacher and a student. A pastor and a church member. A doctor and a patient. A therapist and a counselee. A boss and an employee. An adult and a child. In all of those kinds of scenarios, between the individuals there is a difference in power, isn't there? In Joseph's case, he's a slave. And the Wife of Potiphar is a slave owner. That's a big difference in power. And that's why her story is believed. And yet, what does the scripture say? Even when Joseph is overpowered, even when there is this mismatch of, of ability to, to make your own way, that is taken over by somebody else in their agenda, even when he is falsely accused, when he cannot defend himself, when he is in the last convicted and sentenced without any trial, the Bible still insists the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Hold on to that. Let's say a little bit more about power. Let's say a little bit more about power. The fact is that the whole Joseph story is a study in power. We see Joseph both powerless and at other times powerful. In terms, think about this, in terms of powerlessness, he is the victim of his brother's plot, a foreigner in a strange land, a slave, one falsely accused, and a prisoner. In terms of power, he is the favorite son, a household manager, one who resists seduction, a leader of inmates, a dream interpreter, and finally, Pharaoh's right-hand man. The whole Joseph story is a study in power. And Joseph is not the only character who experiences power shifts and power changes. Joseph's father, Jacob, his brothers, Judah and Tamar, Potiphar and his wife, even Pharaoh himself find themselves at points in this story powerful or at other times powerless. 
Very, very interesting. Whether you and I are consciously aware of it or not, our lives are always moving in situations of differing power levels and power dynamics. And they are rarely constant. They're always shifting. You know, being a student, an employee, a dependent, a medical patient, a parent, a citizen, all of those kinds of roles in those power is, is in relative proportion to everything around, and it's, and it's flowing and moving and changing. Life is a constant navigation of power levels and power dynamics, and those dynamics evolve. The Joseph story invites our serious reflection on our experiences of power. Hmm. lot to think about there. What we have seen in Genesis 39 is that life is a roller coaster of ups and downs. God does not remove all the valleys in life. God uses them. And all along the ride, the peaks, the valleys, and even the straightaways, God is working in us. God gives gifts, gifts of insight, resilience, patience, the gift of a long view of things, a sense of pace, that this is not a sprint, this is a marathon. God gives us the ability to trust that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, There is a sunrise breaking on the edge of night. What happens to Joseph in Egypt is that life repeatedly drops him. But God makes him bounce. In Romans 8.28, Paul sums up life this way. All things work together for good for those who love God. Can you say that with me? All things work together for good for those who love God. Very, very well-known verse. There's two ways to understand it. One, one way is that I'm a Christian and everything will be great. That's one way to understand it. The other way is that there will be good and bad in life. And God will weave everything into the tapestry and out of all of it make something beautiful. That beautiful something won't always happen quickly because you can't rush art. Joseph is 17 at the beginning of this story. It is 30 years before his reunion with his brothers. It took Joseph 30 years to say to his brothers, you sold, but God sent. The gift of a new perspective. You meant it for bad. God meant it for good. Over time, God patiently helps the ship to right itself. All things work together for good. 
dear friends, the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord is with us. After all, who is Jesus Christ? He is Emmanuel, God with us. The Lord bless you.